I'm Matt, and this is Ghostthropology. This podcast is an exploration of ghostly folklore and its relationship to the cultures that produce it. I don't know where or when you are listening to this, but I hope that it's dark outside, as that is the best time for ghost stories. Episode 71, Interview with April Besaw. I'm joined today by April Besaw, who is a professor of anthropology at Vassar College in New York. Please introduce yourself, Dr. Besaw. Hello, uh, I'm April Besaw. I'm a professor of anthropology at Vassar College in Poughkeepsie, New York in the Hudson Valley, which has a wonderful haunted uh, history. Um, And I teach courses on uh, archaeology, forensic anthropology, museum studies, uh, repatriation. But my senior level archaeology course is called Ruins and Haunting Heritage, um, which really helps to bring together all of these ideas of how people experience the past. How did you become interested in integrating the idea of hauntings and ghosts into this public perception of history? Well, my my family is not an academic family, my parents, my grandparents, um, and the way that they've always talked about history has been through ghost stories. We consumed a lot of ghost media, horror movies growing up, horror movies is my thing. I have some friends here on campus who are professors in film and music, and we have a faculty horror club. So I, I understand that when I talk to other archaeologists, other historians, you know, we talk about the nitty gritty details, but when I talk to my family and my friends, they really don't want to talk to me about the nitty gritty details. They want to talk to me about the more fascinating, interesting, unexplained things like ghosts and hauntings. So I just ran with it. I think it's in my blood. My grandparents, my mother's parents growing up used to have a Halloween party every year where you had to arrive at the house in costume, uh, ring the doorbell, and my grandfather in costume would open the door to let one person in. They would have to go down the stairs into the basement and go through a maze where everybody who already arrived would try to scare you. And then when you got to the end, everybody would come out, they would have fun, and then you would get to scare the next person. So you never wanted to come in late. So I see ghosts and hauntings and ghost stories as a form of local history that is accessible to anybody, whereas archaeology, anthropology, and history um, has a lot of barriers to entry. You know, that brings us to one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, which is you discuss in a chapter you wrote for the book Lost City Found Pyramid that the ghost hunter in its current iteration has replaced an earlier version of the archaeologist as a true life adventurer character. Could you please describe that a bit and discuss how you think that occurred? Yeah, I mean, I'm of the age that you know, I was still a kid when the original Indiana Jones came out. And, uh, you know, my students now, they don't really know Indiana Jones, right, that that association. But if I start talking about ghost hunters, like they know ghost hunters, right? So that whole mystique of the archaeology adventurer, you know, not that we should be celebrating Indiana Jones and his his looting and, and so forth, seems to be completely replaced. If you ask my intro archaeology students to name like a famous archaeologist, they can't, but they could tell you about ghost shows and and ghost hunters. So I think that 
you know, for the recent past, for for the generation that's students and and young scholars right now, you know, cable TV and and streaming media has created a a proliferation of ghost content that, you know, when people my age and and older, they, they couldn't find it. It was difficult to find. So it's just, it's extremely accessible where there isn't really a lot of archaeology content that's good archaeology content that's accessible. A lot of the archaeology content that's accessible is fantastic, you know, UFO-related kind of ideas. So I think the spiritualism of the mid to late 1800s and early 1900s created kind of this new way for people to answer questions. And though that spiritualism in the 1800s required a medium, And what we have nowadays in this media is that you don't need to be somebody who was born with special talents. What you need is really a knowledge of science. So I think the recent two decades um, focus in American education on STEM has actually really contributed to the growth of ghost hunting and ghost tourism, because in the late 1800s, you didn't have the same gadgets, right, to detect. And these gadgets... Most ghost hunters see them as that they're doing science, right? So you take a, a science class in your high school and they give you various instrumentation, maybe in physics class, and you detect things that you can't see by your eye. And then you go to ghost hunting and you get an EMF detector, which is a scientific instrument, and you detect things you can't see with your eye. So it's really the interpretation is different. So I think the ghost proliferation of ghost content, both built on STEM education as a way of understanding the things that we can't see through science, but also that you don't have to be special, right? You don't have to be a medium. You could be just about anybody as long as you learn how to use these tools. It was 1973 when the first guide to ghost hunting was published, and it was published by a man whose last name is is Green. And that a lot of ghost hunters see that as the beginning of modern ghost hunting. So I think you have this transition of spiritualism with special people, with mediums that are controlling the interaction with the afterlife. And then you have these techniques that are rooted in science that anybody could do that very much make people feel like they're doing what they did in their science classes in school. So it's a valid way of understanding it. So I think you don't need somebody else to be your your true life hero if you could be your true life hero yourself, something weird is going on. Let me get a detector. Let me go investigate it. You don't need to read a book or watch a movie about somebody who is going into a situation that is amazing and interesting and then doing the work there to figure out what the mystery, the answers are. Well, that makes sense. And certainly ghost walks, especially those that hand you a EMF and tell you to let loose are certainly far more popular than any archaeology program I've ever seen for the public. So yeah, uh, yeah. One of the things that I didn't mention is that, you know, this book comes out in 1973. That's the guide to practical guide to ghost hunting. At the same time, in the early 70s, the American Indian movement is protesting against archaeology, that archaeology is grave robbing, that archaeology is looting, that it shouldn't be done, right? So archaeologists are changing what they're doing and moving away from one idea of what archaeology could be to being more about ethics, more about speaking to living people, more about being respectful, or at least it it should be moving in that direction if some people still haven't done that. Whereas, you know, we have this 
this switch around that, oh, you could do this other thing and, and you could be, you could have amazing results. And I have EMF detectors in my lab right next to my archaeology equipment. Um, I also have a spirit box that scans the radio frequencies. Um, I have the digital thermometer gun, right? So mm -hmm. I have all of these things in my lab because I do ghost hunting with students. And I'll tell you that if I put out an email that who wants to come do an archaeological excavation with me this weekend, I might get like four or five. If I put out an email that says, who wants to go ghost hunting with me, I'll, I'll have maybe a hundred. Mm -hmm. So they want to do it. How do you respond to that? We could ignore it or we could we could look at it and see what does that really mean? And, and what are they looking for when they bring out their EMF detector? You know, I had never thought to link the American Indian movement with like the, a general 1970s interest in the occult and in uh, kind of a spiritualist revival before, but what you were saying makes perfect sense. When we were younger, the best you could do is maybe some reruns of In Search Of. Mm -hmm. And now, yeah, I go to the gym, there's television screens tuned to different ch cable channels, and several of them have ghost hunting shows on them. So yeah, it's a- uh, And that... In Search Of was Leonard Nimoy, yeah. who was also on our science show. Right. Yeah. Like Star Trek was about science and scientists and mm -hmm. the future and, you know, space travel and all of that sort of stuff. So the connection has, I would say, always really been there because both science and, and ghost hunting are ways of trying to figure out things that you don't understand. Right. By doing observation, by collecting data and by talking to people about what you think you saw, what you think you heard. Like you know, there are things that are within our normal realm that are just amazing. Like, you know, I don't know the last time you played a vinyl record. Isn't it kind of amazing that you take this like plastic disc and you put this little needle on it? You hear the music that somebody was making in some other time and place. Right? How much different is that from having an EMF detector to sense something that you couldn't otherwise sense, right? Yeah, or for that matter, I mean, how many times have you sat to read something written by someone long dead and thought, mm -hmm. I'm picking up on the thoughts of somebody who's been dead for decades or centuries? Yeah, you're in their head. One of the things that I found myself uh, wondering about as I read your chapter in this book was the changing nature of archaeology and how that may have also helped to feed this. You know, I do cultural resource management. Most of the public doesn't see what I do. There's federal and state laws preventing them from getting some of my reports and records, whether I want them to or not. It's just not legal for me to distribute them. Most academic archaeologists write for uh, journals that most of the public will never see. It's very different than, you know, the 1930s through the 1950s when it was fairly common for archaeologists to write books for the general public consumption. I know Brian Fagan does quite well. I'm not sure that he does so much anymore, but for quite a long time did, but not too many other people. Whereas the ghost hunters are definitely creating something that's more of a historical encounter that they're actively inviting people into. The archaeologists in the late 1800s and early 1900s were also writing a lot of magazine articles. Mm -hmm. So they were like direct to the public that the public didn't have to go looking for archaeology content. One of the archaeologists that I study is Allenson Buck Skinner. He mm. was a New Yorker. He was a 
a New Yorker of Jewish descent who married three times, but one of his wives was a Native American woman. And then he was, you know, quote unquote, adopted into the Native group. And he wrote ghost stories and alien and monster stories for Weird Tales magazine under a pseudonym. And he worked with Warren King Moorhead, who was the first president of the Society of American Archaeology, who wrote magazine articles and was at uh, Wounded Knee writing a magazine article, right? So the earliest archaeologists and professional archaeology in America were not only writing books, but they were writing for the popular media. They, they were giving um, talks at museums They were that were being advertised in the New York Times, but they were writing these stories. Uh, Warren Moorhead wrote a book that was like a fantastical archaeology book that was The Adventures of a Field Archaeologist. Right. And he had drawings in there where he's like scaling up a mesa. Right. <laughs> so like they they were blurring the boundaries back then, but you know, not just writing archaeology books that people may or may not pick up, but actively going out and interacting with the public. And then in that 1970s era, archaeologists stopped doing this. They became so focused on science, they became so focused on themselves and their research happened in their labs and behind their computer screens. And then when they told the public about what they found, they didn't tell the public about their adventure. They told the public about their very sterile results. And they usually end their story, you know, a good archaeology story ends with, but more research has to be done. <laughs> it's not very satisfying. And you also need a lot of like background understanding. Like I joined a webinar that I'm not going to say whose webinar it was because I don't want it to seem like I'm attacking anybody or speaking badly. But I, I joined an archaeology webinar, you know, that gets advertised through our associations and stuff. And the title was really intriguing. And the content was so dry that I was like, I really don't know what I need to know to make this content interesting. Like I'm sure to the, the researcher, it was fascinating, but I don't have the same questions that that researcher has, right? So showing me how you answered your own question with your own data, that's kind of like, you know, come see the pictures of my vacation in Florida with my family. You're like, uh, Sure. Right. We don't make it interesting because we're so focused on being scientific or being accurate or being academic instead of paying attention to to what the audience wants. And I get a lot of requests for giving local talks, which, you know, I love. I do local archaeology, local history, and they keep saying, oh, you could do it on Zoom. I don't want to do it on Zoom. I want to connect with the community. I want to have those conversations that we have before and after the presentation. I want to see people's eyes when I'm talking to them. And if they look like they're falling asleep, less of that. If they look like they're having a great time, more of that. So I think there's a lot to be thought about as far as not just, you know, are they writing books and are the books publicly accessible, but are we doing things that are engaging or are we so worried about being the authoritative voice of some very small aspect of the past? So what's something that you think that ghost hunters and people who speak about ghosts do right to try to present the past or a place to the public? The, the first thing, if you watch any of the ghost shows, and if you haven't watched any of the ghost shows, I doubt you're watching it, this or listening to this uh, podcast, right? right? So somebody has watched at least one, I'm pretty sure, if they're listening to this. But if you haven't, you know, just 
as soon as you start watching one, what do they do? They, they tell you a very compelling, very short story. That is why you should care, mm -hmm. right? So even if I pull up in my ghost, my fake ghost show, I pull up to say a trailer home, like something that looks like, you know, generic cookie cutter. I will, the first thing I will do is be like, we're here because, you know, Mrs. Smith saw something. And mm -hmm. that's a hook, right? But the first thing you get in an archaeology article is like, Lewis Binford first said this in, in 1971. And it's like, well, <laughs> not very engaging, right? So everything is more small tidbits that go to whatever is important at that time and that location, right? You don't start with, well, this trailer park was built in this year and it was because of NAFTA that these people live here. And, you know, if you use the, the theoretical lens of Giddens, you will understand this. Like it's, it's not that level that you're talking to other people who have read the same things. It's at a very approachable level, why you should care. And you you go to that historic site and they tell you something that you should care about in a way that you will remember it. So I do the ghost tours of my college campus that I created myself out of over 150 hours of research in the archives. I found all the ghost stories that I could find that way. I assembled them into I have three different ghost events, two walking tours and one seated ghost event. And I've learned through trial and error what makes a good ghost story, what makes a good ghost tour. And the thing is that I tell the people there really are no ghosts on the Vasher ghost tour. <laughs> right? You're not going to encounter anybody. There is nothing like super like upsetting. There's nothing disrespectful. The first spot is a dorm that has this tower. And we start the tour there on the hour because that dorm with that tower was where a Vassar student lived, whose name was Edna St. Vincent Millay. And she was a poet and she won prizes for being a poet not long after graduating Vassar, but one of her poems was called The Suicide Note. And in the poem, she talks about life not being worth living and that she's going to jump out of the tower when the bells strike the hour. So I wait for my ghost tour to start when those same bells are striking the hour, when I'm standing in front of that tower and telling this story of this woman who, you know, it was a it was a poem, but a lot of people take it to be a true suicide note. She also wrote that poetry that's often on tombstones about burning the candle too bright and it makes such a beautiful light, right? So she has that association with death as well. But she lived 50 more years after graduating, but she died in her home and was found at the bottom of her stairs having potentially fallen down the stairs. So that's my ghost story, right? So it is ghostly, right? It has mm -hmm. multiple connections with the ghost, but we're not going to encounter her in a paranormal sense. But as we were talking about, when you're reading somebody's writing that is somebody who is, is deceased, you're communicating with the dead in a way, right? We are experiencing her imagining when she was in that dorm room that, it would be easy to commit suicide. I would just jump out of this tower and we're standing where if she did, she would have landed. And we're talking about how people take what she has written and see the connection between life and death in it. 
and that her death was, you know, sad in that falling down the stairs, broken neck kind of sad. So that's how it's a ghost story. But it doesn't have to be disrespectful. It doesn't have to have the paranormal. There doesn't have to be somebody come running at us dressed as Edna St. Vincent Millay. So that's a, a small bit of history that you've now learned a lot about Vassar, right? Mm-hmm. But in a way that you would remember it and that you won't necessarily remember all the details, but you remember enough that if somebody ever says, oh, did you ever be to, go to Vassar? You could say, oh, well, but I know Edna St. Vincent Millay and there was this suicide note poem and Right. How many archaeology journal articles do you read that after you've read it, you're like, I really don't know what I was supposed to get at. Right. So the ghost hunters give us how to tell a good story that has the past in it and tells us, tells the audience why the past is relevant to today. Well, and also is engaged with people like you're connecting to a person and not a shell midden. Mm-hmm. But our focus on STEM and science has to be what archaeology is. Got us all about, here's our data tables. <laughs> here's our shell middens. Here's how far they are from water. Here's, you know, the density of them. I'm a faunal analyst. I do zooarchaeology. And so much of the zooarchaeology is so boring because it's just, this is the count and weight of the animals at my site. Like, to me, that's the start of the story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but It so often is the end, right? I had more pigs than cows. Yay. But why is it relevant? They rarely get there. Or they say, more research is needed to figure out why it was like this. Well, that's not satisfying. Yeah, I remember years back being on a uh, site in the Sierra Nevadas where we were looking at bedrock milling stations. For anybody listening, those are the holes in rocks where acorns were ground. And my boss at the time was measuring the distances and getting the bearings between them very carefully. And I asked him, so Tom, why are you doing that? And he said, I know they're trying to tell me something. I just don't know what. But of course, that sentiment would never end up in any report he wrote. But it's what drove him. And it's part of what drives me. And I suspect part of what drives you. Yeah, we're told that we have to do things in certain ways and we're given these general patterns that we start to believe 100%. Like in you know some of my past research when I was trying to be much more of a scientist than I worry about nowadays, for burials for indigenous people, there was this, oh, these people bury their dead facing east and these people bury their dead facing south. So all of these archaeologists are like figuring out who's... Fa- you know, the sun rises and sets in various places throughout the year. Like, are, are mm-hmm. we talking cardinal east? Are we talking about magnetic north? Like, so I had all of this data and I looked at and there was no patterns at all. Right. Like it, it's it's something that makes it sound like we're doing science. Right? If you're not taking measurements, you're not doing science. But those ghost hunters, they have their detectors. They're taking measurements. And Mm -hmm. then people say, but they're not doing science, right? How are those things, you know, they're symmetrical, but we think that they're asymmetrical when we start doing a critique, you know, Mm -hmm. how silly of them to think that they're detecting. Well, the EMF detector is detecting electromagnetic frequency, right? Mm -hmm. Whether you're using it as an electrician or you're using it as a ghost hunter, it's doing what it's doing. It's all about the interpretation. Well, it's funny. I'd never really thought to compare the uh, collection of that sort of information by ghost hunters with looking at burials by archaeologists. But uh, there's a reason why in things I've done, I don't generally worry too much about, you know, the burial aside from, oh, this is typical of this particular group. So that probably tells us they were through here because 
what does it mean? And I think that's the main criticism I would have for a lot of ghost hunter groups is, okay, you've collected this information. What does it mean? But yeah, you could level that at a lot of archaeological work as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you go read a, a fall analysis report and it's like the meat animal units are this and the minimum number of elements is this. And I'm like, I've never, ever seen a publication where that mattered. But mm-hmm. it's like you have to do it to show that you did what you were supposed to do. But then you go make a whole conclusion that has nothing to do with meat animal units and minimum number of elements. Yeah, I don't know if you remember a few years back, a paper was published about a rock art site here in California. The takeaway of the paper was that it was the first indication of hallucinogenic use at a rock art site in this area. You know, I was surprised to see that it was you know being reported in almost every news outlet. I wrote the appendix, or one of the appendices, I should say to that, which was the faunal analysis appendix. And so you've got this paper, which actually was genuinely quite interesting. The public was fascinated because it talked about this very human thing. People were doing this for this reason. And then I'm in the background writing this little section on faunal analysis that nobody is going to read. I wouldn't even read it. But you're the scientist, right? Right. You're toiling away, doing things that nobody cares about, right? That's kind of the image of a scientist right now. Mm-hmm. So which which would you rather be, a ghost hunter or a scientist? Yeah. So with this being the in mind, what do you think archaeologists should be learning from ghost hunters as far as uh, trying to engage the public and present the work we do, or maybe even ways to reform the work we do? I think the, the biggest thing is that the public is interested in the past, right? They want to connect to the past. They want to understand why that building in your community that's an abandoned ruin is an abandoned ruin, right? Mm -hmm. And if you don't tell them, you being anybody who understands, they'll have their own stories for it, right? So it is great news that people are interested. If you watch one of these ghost hunting shows, they're interested in some house in some far away town that you'll never go to, right? So when we think that people aren't interested in the past, they really are. It's just how to create something that is meaningful for them. So other archaeologists who talk about, you know, public archaeology and stuff and have done research that, you know, generates data to say this for sure, have found that the public generally wants stories that connect to the things that they're dealing with in their own lives. Things like unrequited love makes a good story. It helps people feel better. You know, Valentine's Day is coming up from when we're recording this, right? It's it's an issue for a lot of people that they've lost somebody that they wish they could have for Valentine's Day. So Having stories about things like unrequited love doesn't sound like science, but that's what people want to be able to connect to people in the past. They want to see themselves in the past. This is why a lot of stories and about the young dying, children dying, young women dying, that's a lot of what these ghost stories are because a lot of us have experienced that loss in our lives and we we feel like they didn't get to live out their lives. So there's a little bit of hope that maybe they could. So, you know, there is one way of them, you know, not being forgotten is if archaeologists, historians, and so forth talk about them, right? So that the the ghost is a mechanism, it's an anchor for keeping alive that person. So 
one, the public wants to know about the past, especially their local history, but they want to know these small stories, these stories that are their sorts of stories, the stories that they could connect with, right? The stories that are going to make them feel something, not make it that, oh, if there's a pop quiz at the end, are you going to pass or fail? How do I connect? So if every archaeologist looked at their project with, well, what could the average person connect with here and put that at the forefront? Once somebody connects, then they ask more questions, right? So, oh, I connected to almost every town has a bridge that supposedly a young woman died at and haunts, right? So if there's this bridge, this is what happened at this bridge, right? Most people don't care about bridge history at all, infrastructure history at all. But, you know, this suggests they do. You know, what are the things that, you know, young people are dying from in the community today? Right. So thinking about these connections can give us that way of, of rethinking our archaeology, that we don't have to prove that we're scientists. We don't have to prove that we're experts, that we read every article, every book, that we know every single theory, but that we could take the past and make it into a usable form for the average person right? and generate whether we're a good archaeologist or not based on that, not based on how difficult our articles are to read. I'm trying very hard to not ever cite Bordeaux and Foucault in anything. And every <laughs> every reviewer is like, you did not cite Bordeaux or Foucault. Like, I we don't need to do that, do we? Yeah, there's there's a reason I escaped into CRM. It was so I don't have to cite Bordeaux or Foucault. <laughs> and then I start doing this podcast and I have to go back and reread their stuff anyway. Yeah. One of the things that that makes me think, well, that actually makes me think of two things, both of them in the American South. But are you familiar with Alina Pirock's work at Colonial Williamsburg? She and I were in a conference session at the Historical Archaeology Conference maybe 10 years ago. Mm hmm. So I haven't kept up with everything that she's been doing, but we have intersected in the past. And and she's, if I remember correctly, more into the, the story itself. Yes. Yeah. But one of the things, uh, she recently released a book summarizing a lot of her research. And one of the things that becomes very clear in the book is that the officials at Colonial Williamsburg are very much taking the, let's tell the public about you know, how we reconstructed this building, how we knew which type of pine to use, the sort of thing that, you know, you end up with in a journal article. And it was these outside groups doing ghost tours that were clearly engaging with the public and giving people a more direct experience with the past. I recently read the dissertation of a woman named Holly Vaughn, who is a professor of performance studies, I think. But her dissertation was on the Myrtles Plantation in Louisiana and focused on ghost tourism surrounding a figure there called Chloe. I don't know if you're familiar with that story or not. Yeah, I haven't looked at it recently, but when, when I do the Ruins and Haunting Heritage class, we talk about it a little bit. What she gets into is that it's actually fairly trivial to prove Chloe never really existed. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't change the fact that through this story, you have an avenue to get people talking about slavery in a much more personal way and a much more visceral way than they otherwise would be willing to do. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of ghost stories are not true in an accuracy sense, but they are true in a, these things are important to us, something like this happens. So sometimes they're like a conflation of five different versions of things or five different accounts, right? So it might be the same person or not. There is 
folklore research on the ghost stories of colleges where, you know, they've gone out and collected them all and, and analyzed them. And almost every college has a ghost story about somebody who committed suicide. Mm-hmm. And colleges generally don't keep alive the history of people who committed suicide. They don't publicize it. It's usually not in their school newspapers and things like that. So when people know that somebody died, right, they they create not like it is an intentional lie, but there's this creation of, oh, did you hear about that person who died a long time ago? Oh, yeah, I heard it was this. Oh, I heard it was that. And then when those people go and tell the story, right, they mush it together that it's much more coherent. The concern about proving or disproving any individual ghost story, I think, misses the entire point that the ghost story exists because people want to talk about that thing. And just like, you know, if you went to a movie and said, well, you know, Superman didn't really exist. This is a horrible movie, right? What does Superman represent, right? It represents desires to have, you know, heroes in the world and and ones that can withstand whatever the bad guys are going to throw at them. So if you see ghosts in that way, even the ghosts at our historic sites, here's a historic site that has slavery issues, that has women's issues. How are we going to talk about them in a safe way? Well, we could talk about them through ghosts. In, in a way, it's a bit like Star Trek having different colored aliens to talk about racism. Yeah. And then they have their universal translator that you know makes that you don't have to worry about the language barriers from all of these different beings from all over the world, right? So we're not upset that there's a universal translator. How dare they mm-hmm. do that? That's wrong. That's fake. And it takes away everything that linguistic anthropology could ever give to them, right? <laughs> like, or you could say, well, this is a tool. It is a narrative tool to get to what is important, right? Mm-hmm. So in a lot of ways at our historic sites, ghosts are a narrative tool to allow the things that might be too horrible to talk about in a real sense to be talked about in a way that is okay. Mm-hmm. When I read the book, The Amityville Horror, it struck me that, you know, here's a book from the mid 70s that's talking about essentially PTSD, people being uncertain about settling down and starting a family, people buying a house. But because it's all wrapped up as a ghost story, it's okay to talk about these things in a way that it wouldn't otherwise have been in 1975. Yeah. And that there were a lot of flies in that house. I bought a house in Ohio and like the week after it was infested with carpenter bees, I could see how buying a house and then suddenly <laughs> having an infestation of critters could be a thing. I actually grew up in the town adjacent to Amityville. Mm-hmm. And it was a thing that we did when you were in high school, you drove to the Amityville Horror House, which is not as isolated as it is in the in the movies. It's on a suburban street with houses right next to it. Um, and the local community does not like that, you know, people do this. So there's like a neighborhood watch and they will knock on your car window and tell you to get the hell out of there. But yeah, so that that to me is local history, right? Mm-hmm. That to me is a local story. And the amount of stories that I heard growing up about what happened there, none of them were true, right? None of mm-hmm. them were what the account would be. But even if you read five different newspaper articles, they're going to tell a slightly different story. Yeah. So you're the reason why the people who bought the house had to change the windows is what I'm getting from this. (laughs) Well, the windows made it that when we would go there, 
it was usually that none of us had ever been there before. Mm -hmm. We all knew what street it was on and you would look for those windows. Yeah. So it, it's, it's the people in my town and the adjacent towns looking for those windows, but I can't go anywhere and see those windows on a different house without being like that house is haunted. When I was a kid, a lot of new houses were built near where I lived. And a few of them had those, I forget what the term is, but it was the specific shape windows. And I remember just looking, I'm thinking, yeah, that's creepy. Yeah. 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 I love when there's a house with a window that is all the way at the top all by itself. And the window looks a little weird. And I call it the crippled child window because <laughs> I don't know if you ever saw the George C. Scott movie, The Changeling. One of my favorite movies. That movie is amazing. And, you know, it's just it that's that's the narrative. That's all you need. Right. That mm -hmm. now you and I are interested to some level in buildings that have these two kinds of windows. Right. But we didn't do any scientific research. Right. So that's mm -hmm. that's that power of ghost stories that. Otherwise, we might not pay any attention to those buildings, but it's like I see the George C. Scott movie as soon as I see a window like that. And, you know, I, I tell my friend and then my friend gets upset because, oh, she has one of those at her house and now she can't sleep at night in her house. Right. That's how ghosts are manifested. Right. We didn't need to have a seance. We didn't have to have the Ouija board and not say goodbye. Right. The ghosts are manifest just by a good story. And the story could be as simple as, oh, yeah, you know, the, those windows are you know, associated with this movie and then, oh, I can't sleep at night. So it seems like a uh, pretty good argument could be made that you can use ghost stories to engage people, to get them either interested in the past or more often, perhaps give them an avenue to express their interest in the past. It does, though, seem to pull in a question of how do you transition people from having this be their avenue to having a more solid understanding of what may have happened in the past in a given area? And I'm not really sure how you would approach that. Do you have any ideas on that? Well, this is one of the reasons that I do ghost hunting with my students. Like I've, mm -hmm. I've seen, I've done it. I've seen it happen in the the chapter that I wrote for Jeb Card and David Anderson's book, The Lost City Found Pyramid. Mm -hmm. I was teaching in Ohio. There was a building that was on the college campus that was abandoned, falling apart that, you know, the college owned. And the students said at the beginning of our, my course that they didn't care anything about this building. And then we spent a semester interacting with the building, including doing ghost hunting, including using the Ouija board. And at the end of the semester, they started a historic preservation club on campus. So it is a good introduction to a book. It brings people in, but then they want more. Most people don't just want the ghost story if it's their local community and then move on, right? If they're just traveling through, that's fine. Mm -hmm. But if it's in their local community, the ghost story gets them to ask the questions. And then as they're asking the questions, they get to the more technical aspects. So we did archaeological excavation at that house. The students were totally into it. They wanted to find that there used to be a greenhouse connected to it. They're like, we have to find the greenhouse. But just the same that when we did the, the Ouija board, and it was totally optional whether they did the Ouija board, the planchette is going around and it just seemed like random letters to me. And they were like, that's the initials of the guy who lived here in these years, right? So the, the ghost hunting allowed them to 
use the information that they were learning from the more dry sources. And then to the other way, when they were doing the technical things like the archaeology, they were bringing in the ghost stories to be like, oh, this probably happened here and that. So I have seen it over and over again. If you tell a good ghost story and you leave people with questions, they will ask the questions and then they will develop a more genuine more academic-y kind of interest in it. So we have an Egyptian mummy on campus here, and he is not out on display. Students can request to see the, the mummy and its sarcophagus. And students, you know, I, I include that on the ghost tour. We don't go into the museum, but I say behind these walls is Vasher's oldest student, <laughs> over 2,000 years old. And they're like, what? And then somebody will email me and be like, I want to learn more about the mummy. And then I have like technical reports that are, chemistry professor analyzed the pigments and the paint on the sarcophagus of this mummy. And the students are like reading that and be like, wow, that's super cool, right? So a five sentence, like here, there's a mummy behind this wall turns into a student reading an analytical chemistry report and thinking it's cool. So one of the things that I've learned from ghost hunting is you always leave the audience wanting more. If you answer all of the questions or worse, if you make it that there's no questions to ask because there's just there's knowledge and I know the knowledge and you just don't know the knowledge. So that's your fault. Right. If you tell stories in ways that generate questions and you allow the questions to guide what's going on, people will walk away with more questions and then they will go seek out that information. And that's where it could be a transformative experience. You know, it makes me think of, I used to live in the uh, Santa Cruz area, about 90 miles south of San Francisco. There's a house down the street from where I lived, a huge, looked like an Italian villa, but made of concrete, run down, clearly abandoned. And it had a lot of ghost stories, which fascinated me, drew me to it. But then I started thinking, why is that there? I mean, it's just such a weird building. And eventually I'm reading title deeds and legal documents trying to make sense of it. Right. Which is not as satisfying as consuming the ghost stories, but that that is 90% of the ruin ghost legends. And that's what all the young people are doing is, you know, trespassing where the ruins are. And because every aspect of our landscape is being developed or is inhabited, right? So to have a void, that is where there's a slip in time. Like there's something that doesn't belong here that's persisting. Mm-hmm. That is a ghost. An abandoned building in your neighborhood is that ruin is in a way a ghost. It doesn't make sense. It's the past permeating into the present. And the only way for people to understand it is to ask questions, what happened there? And then somebody will tell some version of what they remembered. Oh, you know, the old lady died, right? And that then it turns possibly into something. So she was murdered, right? And now you have this story that satisfies somebody. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense. Why is that building there? Why hasn't somebody put a Chipotle on top of it? Because something happened there, right? So you start getting all of the elements and there's not been, in what we were just discussing, there's not been a manifestation of a dead person that needs to be proven or disproven. There is the anomaly of something from the past is still here. It has a story to tell. And if I could understand its story, the ghost will kind of be dispelled in a way, right? Because I can understand Mm -hmm. it and I can live with this ghost, 
right? And that's what a lot of the ghost hunter shows do. They go into these houses that somebody says, I don't know if I could live here. It's haunted. And by the end, the person who owned the house is like, I think I could sleep better now. If you watch the medium shows like mm -hmm. Long Island Medium, you know, they're crying because their son died when he was 16 or something. And then at the end of the show, they're like, I can now have peace. The function of the ghost story is to bring peace to people, to answer those questions, to help us understand how time works. That abandoned building, I was just in Santa Cruz in the, at the end of the Society for Historical Archaeology Conference in January, and I... Drove from Santa Cruz to San Jose and went to the Winchester Mystery House. <laughs> and I did their Walking with Spirits tour, which was not very good. Yeah. And then I did their mansion tour, which was actually much more ghostly and haunting than their Walking with Spirits tour. They tried way too hard with the Spirits tour. When they stopped trying, it was good. So... You know, my wife grew up a few blocks away from the Winchester house, so <laughs> we know it well. And if you know it well, you know that now it's all like high rises around it, mm -hmm. right? So just the fact that it's a Victorian house that persists next to a highway on the San Jose landscape makes it a ruin, right? Mm -hmm. Makes it haunted. You don't even have to hear any of the ghost stories. Like, why is it there? It's literally there because of ghost stories, but it shouldn't be there. I'm sure they would make more money if they demolished it and built a high rise. And you'd have a lot of public outcry if you did that, which is yep. in of itself pretty interesting. Right. How many archaeology sites are people going to get upset if somebody puts a Chipotle on an, on an archaeology site? Very few. Yep. Right? It depends if there's a you know descending community and, and so forth. But these places that are the anchors of our local history, of our knowledge of time, they, they become sacred to you know the public. One of the things that I find really interesting about the case of the Winchester house is that Sarah Winchester herself is a very different person than the stories surrounding the house would indicate. But those stories seem to have grown up from a uh, kind of society gossip in the area in the late 19th and early 20th century and then took on a life of their own so that we now have the Sarah Winchester who is a spiritualist who is afraid of everything as opposed to a Sarah Winchester who was pretty definitely not a spiritualist, probably didn't believe in ghosts and was actually engaged in the construction possibly as a way of dealing with grief, which I mean, the, the main story gets into that, but it's a very different way. She's not afraid. She's just occupying her time as opposed to running from ghosts. A hundred years from now, people might call you and I a spiritualist, right? Oh, very likely. Yeah. So, like she might have engaged with it because it was in fashion, or she might have wholeheartedly believed in it. But as you know, yeah. as archaeologists and as people who do historic preservation work, we both know that buildings get built and unbuilt in various ways. Additions mm -hmm. are there. Lots of houses have doors that go nowhere. Yeah. That is standard. But all you do is you put it in this frame that why is there a door going nowhere? And people get so excited. So I have a classroom in this building. In the classroom, it's one of those old like wood paneled rooms with an old fireplace. And of course it says, don't use the fireplace. It's not functional. And in the back of this room is a door. And the door has like one of those arms at the top to make sure it doesn't open all the way right? And it's locked. But if you go outside in the hallway, there's nothing on the other side. It is a fully functional door with hinges and is locked, but it's locked from a side that you can't ever experience. You can't ever see the other side. I pointed out to the students and they wanted to get sledgehammers. It's an inert door. This happens all the time, but you put it in the Winchester Mystery House 
you charge $20, you have a tour and you say, why in the world is there, there's a stairway that went nowhere. My brother renovated his house. He has a stairway that went nowhere while he was waiting for the upstairs to be built. Mm -hmm. Things are built in stages. So yes, she was constantly building. So things don't make sense possibly just because she was constantly building. Yep. The door to nowhere that they interpret when you go to the site is very different from the video that you could get on YouTube that is one of these America history haunted shows that has William Shatner, not Leonard Nimoy this time, as the host. And he talked about the door to nowhere. And then when I went there, the door to nowhere is a completely different door, mm -hmm. right? So which one is real? Which one is accurate, right? The people who tried to make a show about the house in the same time frame are telling two different stories. If you understand buildings at all, you understand that they don't make sense to some level. If you understand the history of medicine in, in our country, or even just modern day, lots of houses have had people die in them. Mm -hmm. But we want to believe that everybody dies at a hospital surrounded by loved ones. But yet we also celebrate that I want to die at home in my bed in my sleep. But then if you hear somebody died in that house, you don't want to go in that house. Somebody died there. When I bought this house, it had actually been used as a hospice. People died in the room I'm sitting in. Yeah, yeah. I know that for a fact, you know? <laughs> And uh, apparently they were having a hard time selling the house because of that. Yeah. The place I live was associated with a murder-suicide. And when we were, you know, it's in an apartment complex or a townhouse complex. When we were looking to rent, they said, well, we only have one available and it's associated with a murder-suicide and we have to tell you that, right? So like understanding that places have histories and it's just easier to feel that when it's that abandoned house that's in the town. What happened there? We don't usually want to one, find out what happened in the places that we live because we don't want to know that. Yeah, that's true. I know the realtor was very, very surprised that I wasn't bothered by the people, the fact that people had died in this house. Yeah. My husband was like, oh, my wife publishes on that. And the real estate agent was like, what? <laughs> like, they, they didn't see that as like, a, you know, oh, well, of course, if you publish on it, it's okay. <laughs> They're like, this information does not fit with the question that I asked you. One of the things that I find very interesting and has really driven a lot of my own inquiries on this, and you touch on in your paper telling ghost stories, is the way that ghost stories can help form a person's identity within a place. And you're talking about uh, the ghost stories of Vassar College here. You talk about a building that you call Maine. Yeah, it, it's the college first started, the entire college was in this building including like the residence of the the founder. So it is the main building. So it's main building. Gives you an idea of how much smaller colleges were at one point. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that I found very recognizable here is your description of students searching for the uh, window that uh, initials were carved into, for example, but in other ways, sort of integrating them into the place by engaging with these stories. It seems like at Vassar, and I would suspect this is the case at a lot of other places, ghost stories can also form a way for somebody to gain an identity within a place, not just look at the past of that place. Is that seem accurate to you or? Yeah, I, I think it it's kind of an individualistic exploration. Like it starts with what 
in this case, a student is really looking for, right? So why are they attracted to a ghost tour? Why do they go on a ghost hunt with me? And my definitions of those with Michelle Hanks's where, you know, a ghost tour, you're walking around and somebody's telling you ghost stories. A ghost hunt is when you're, you know, the lights are off and you're trying to actually engage. So different people go on them for, for different reasons, but everybody seems to be very like, when they come out of it, they feel some joy about it. They brag about the fact that they've done it, even though they might experience something very different. When I was in Ohio, I was teaching ghost hunting there in a, a class that was part of the, their honors college. So you had to be an honor student to take this. And the, the class was called science or pseudoscience. And we presented, okay, this is what people call science. And we didn't, this is what people call pseudoscience. And we didn't, we talked about, you know, the differentiation. And um, we did ghost hunting as a graded class activity, um, which some people thought was ridiculous and other people thought was the most brilliant thing ever. And I had this one student who was truly scared. And I was like, well, you don't have to do it. Like you could do an alternate assignment. She's like, no, no, but I want to do it. So we went down in this basement that had these very narrow hallways and she was just screaming the whole time. And I was like, why don't you go outside? She's like, no, no, I want to do this. I want to do this. And, you know, I give students equipment so they can do all the EVP recordings and the EMF recordings and all that sort. And a student had our camera and took a picture. So there's this photo of this long, dark hallway in the background. And I'm looking at this student and she's like screaming and I'm smiling. And it's <laughs> I'm smiling because she just really, really wanted to conquer this fear. Mm -hmm. So when we were done, she was like, I'm so glad I did it. I'm so glad I did it. Right. So for that student, it was not about the story as much as, you know, she was just afraid of not even sure what, like she had many people with her. Like I was taking care of her. We had approval from, you know, health and safety to do this. Uh, there was nothing dangerous, but for her, I think the being brave was the identity that she got out of being part of our ghost hunt, right? Whereas other people are looking for a more of a connection with, with the history of what's going on there. So when I used to live in, in Maine, which is both a academic building and a dorm at Vassar, there's three floors of, of dorms and they have two faculty member families that live there. And the college placed me in Maine because it's the most haunted building on campus. And they knew that I would appreciate that. Around Halloween, the other faculty member is a archaeologist in the Greek and Roman studies department. She and I would have a Ghosts of Maine event with the students and you know, we just invite whoever wants to come. And the students would come to learn about their building. And I had promised the, the dean of students that I would not give room numbers as to which rooms were haunted, right? And I told the students, you could do the same research I did, but they never would take that step to do it. And so the dean of students was worried that once a student found out their room was haunted, they wouldn't want to live there anymore, right? So there's various levels of belief. But at the end of my ghost stories, you know, where the students would come, you know, were in their dorm, they would come, some of them in their pajamas with their blanket, and they would be like holding each other on the couches. Like it was like story time. They would be upset if their room didn't have a ghost story or if there wasn't a ghost story that they couldn't be like, I think that's my room. So they were looking for potentially connections with 
the people who were like them living in the same room in the past. So for them, it may or may not have been as much about bravery, but it was, you know, a little bit about what their own mortality is going to be like, right? Are they going to be remembered? And most of the the dorm ghost stories, not all of them, but most of the dorm ghost stories are about Vassar students who died elsewhere when they were other ages, but they were happiest when they were a Vassar student in that building. So in death, they chose to come back to Vassar, right? So doesn't that sound like a recruiting line? You'll be happy here <laughs> even in death, right? So I think that them seeing that somebody would want to be where they are now. So I think everybody's getting something slightly different as far as identity formation when they're consuming ghost content. Yeah, that reminds me again of Elena Pirock's work in which she talks about people restoring houses specifically to bring back the ghosts of the, the in quotes, great men of history, because, mm -hmm. well, why would you want to be in the afterlife when you could be in this house? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know if you saw there was an article right after the, the lockdown ended that more of the younger people that are buying houses now actually think that their house being haunted would be a plus. And they, the quotes in this, it was, you know, an, an online article that wasn't like a journal article or anything. It's just who knows what, it, who these quotes were and how they found these people that people were saying that they spent so much time at home alone during the lockdown being scared that they would have felt better if their house was haunted with a ghost. So they wouldn't have been so alone. Huh. I, I didn't never saw that, but that it makes a weird sort of sense. Yeah. The world is more scary than the ghost that lives in your house potentially. And mm -hmm. if that ghost is living in your house, cause they were happy there, you have nobody else to talk to. You could talk to the ghost. Right. I don't know if you ever watched uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. My but... wife is a huge fan and we recently watched that in Angel together. So there was a Cordelia Chase. Movie. Dennis the ghost. Yeah. <laughs> that was actually, that was an angel. Yeah. Yeah. So she, her ghost became her roommate. And mm -hmm. when something happened to her, the ghost notified her friends that something happened to her. So like this, you know, it works in media. So I guess since this is such a media generation, they consume so much, you know, maybe ghosts are no longer the thing to avoid. Maybe this world where, you know, somebody sneezes on you and you could die. Maybe that's more to avoid and the ghosts are more comforting. Where I live locally, there's a very large Mexican expatriate population as well as their children and grandchildren. And in conversations I have, there's often this notion of, oh yeah, you know, there's a ghost here. It's cool. There's ghosts yeah. everywhere. Don't worry about it. They're just hanging out. Talk to them if you want. Yeah. If you read Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House, which is the start of the American haunted house genre, she says in there, you know, people have to die someplace. There are ghosts everywhere. But this house <laughs> has the most. And then if you read that book, the original Shirley Jackson book, there is nothing that is 100% ghost in there. Everything could be just a radiator, just in their mind, that one of the actors, the, the characters in the book could have done what happened there. There is mm -hmm. no proof in this book. And, you know, how that has been interpreted recently in all of the remakes, I think it's one of the most remaked and, and have derivative of, you know, additions that the ghosts are like in your face in the remakes. And if you read the original book, it's like the temperature here is cold. 
And the first page says that the, the guy who is bringing everybody together to investigate the haunting of Hill House is an archaeologist because that is the profession that is the most accepted profession that through which you could study haunted phenomena. How times have changed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, well, and the funny thing about it is that I know plenty of archaeologists who are very clear. They will tell you they've seen ghosts, they've encountered ghosts as a result of their field work. But yeah, it's not something you'll ever see show up in any papers that we write. Yeah. And, you know, my work on the ghost stuff is not highly cited. It's not like archaeologists mm -hmm. are like, oh, I'm going to take this and I'm going to use it. I think there's still a like, well, she might be a little crazy, but <laughs> we're going to, maybe we'll read it, maybe we'll enjoy it. But, you know, the Lost City um, Found Pyramid book has been out for a decade and it doesn't have a lot of people using it in their work, but it has been cited multiple times in the Australian Journal of Parapsychology. Hmm. The paranormal people, the people who research paranormal and write journal articles have used it, but the archaeologists, not so much, right? People will drop in that, you know, April Besaw says a well-told story is a ghost story, and then they'll move on. But yeah, it's it's not making a huge change in the in the field. I'm curious if you've had an experience that I've had as well. I'll go to conferences and say, oh, that's Matt. He does X, Y, and Z. He's also got this weird interest in ghost stories. Yeah, yeah. So it's just kind of that. But then when you get alone with people and say, I want to tell you about this and I want you to see if you can explain it to me. <laughs> that's how a lot of like the, the ghost stories of Vassar are like proliferating. That once people know that I'm the person who does the Vassar ghost tours, they're like, I have a story to tell you. And they often are very personal, emotional stories about one woman, her son died and she has his cell phone and it's in a drawer. And she's like, it rings every now and then. Mm -hmm. It had nothing to do with Vassar other than she was connected. But I think people are looking for safe people to tell their ghost stories to, and they're not sure who that would be. And they don't necessarily want to tell their family members because, you know, family members judge us all the time. But so who can be that safe person? So I'm kind of like the confessional person. It does help if we're, you know, at the bar or whether or not anybody's drinking, but if we're in a social situation that makes it feel safer, a couple of years ago, you know, now it was closer to 10 years ago, the Society for American Archaeology Conference was in New Orleans, and a bunch of us as historical archaeologists went on the ghost tours together, and we had so much fun. And the ghost tour guy brought us for a stop in a bar, and I think it was like a relationship with that bar that, you know, people would buy alcohol and a little bit of a rest, and you could use the bathrooms. And the bartender was like, oh, we have artifacts here, right, as part of the ghost tour. And here's like 10 historical archaeologists, and he's like, we have a box of artifacts, and we're like, what? So we start pawing through and identifying everything, and the, the ghost tour people were so confused that we took like the artifacts and the archaeology of it so seriously. And one of the people that was on that tour was Sarah Surface Evans, who is mm -hmm. now the, the state archaeologist in, in Michigan. And she was one of the editors of a book, Blurring Timescapes, which is about archaeology, history, and sociology, uh, that ghost stories are part of all of that. So, you know, we, we have this kind of, oh, 
let's do this. This will kind of be fun. Then it turns accidentally into an academic exercise. And then, oh, we'll do an edited volume that has this in it as well. So yeah, be careful of those um, confessions, but they might actually go somewhere. They, they don't have to just be that, you know, you're the crazy guy. But when I was just a, a faunal expert, I was the one everybody called when they found a dead animal. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, would you rather would you rather be the person they call when they have a cool ghost story or when they like, here's my dead cat. And you're like, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do with your dead cat. Here. Yeah, that, that that's a dead cat. You are correct. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the number of times that people have brought me rocks and what do you think of this? I think it's a rock. Yeah, I had this guy who kept pushing me. What did I say? I'm not a geologist. He's like, but. What, what would you call it? I'm not a geologist. I think it's a meteorite. I'm not a geologist. Like they're sure mm-hmm. of the certain things that we're supposed to know, right? Yeah. And I think accepting that, you could then see that, you know, when people ask ghost hunters questions that they can't answer, you know, they do what they do. They know what they know. We do what we do. We know what we know. But some people are looking for us to speak outside of our expertise and they don't like it when we're not willing to. Yeah. People constantly say, do you believe in ghosts? And my stock answer is I believe in ghost stories. Mm-hmm. Those stories exist. They exist in every culture. They persist throughout space and time. Be- long after I'm dead, there will be ghost stories. And to deny that ghost stories are powerful, like whether or not somebody will buy a house or demand to be removed from their dorm room, right? Ghost stories exist and they are powerful. So what more do you need? What's the next step to say that ghosts exist? And that's something that uh, you mentioned frequently in actually all of the papers of yours I've read here, which is that whether or not ghosts have an actual physical existence, the fact is that we respond as a culture as if they're there and they do have an effect on our behavior, which is in of itself a fascinating phenomenon. It's actually more fascinating if ghosts don't really exist. Why are we behaving this way? Yep. One last thing I wanted to ask you about, because this is really kind of hit home to me, is in one of these papers, you note that it's probably an error to consistently interpret ghost stories through a political lens. And I'm 100% guilty of this. But I suspect that for those of us who are not specifically ghost hunters, but are steeped in social science, we're so trained to look at everything through this type of lens that it's hard for us not to. You're the only one who's ever brought that up to me. It it doesn't seem to be a concern that most people have when they are talking to me mm-hmm. about ghosts and ghost hunting and ghost stories. So it might be the different circles that we are running in, but it isn't something that I've been engaged with a lot. And maybe it's because, you know, to my family, you know, growing up, Ghosts are just part of the world. And, you know, my family, their political leanings are all over the place. So it didn't come to me in a package that like Mm -hmm. people who believe in ghosts or ghost stories are these kinds of people. Or if you allow ghosts and ghost stories to exist, you're on that end of the spectrum. You know, it it hasn't been an issue in what I do. Uh, Maybe I've been oblivious to it, but I've been doing this a long time and I, I give all sorts of lectures, you know, at the professional level, at the amateur level, at local historical societies. And and nobody has has brought it up to me in a way that is something that made a huge imprint on me that I 
needed to think about. I know I find myself often looking at a story and saying, well, what's the bigger significance of this? And it often plays out not in a political sense as in partisan, but rather, oh, this is about class struggle. This is about racism. This is about, you know, X, Y, or Z things. And I think often that is valid, but there's a lot of cases where, no, somebody just saw something weird. Yeah. And there was a NPR show, one of those NPR podcasts that, you know, somebody sent me the link to that was about ghost hunting and at historical sites and and that it was disrespectful to African Americans and, and this and that. And of course, you know, there's aspects whenever you're talking about death, political landmines that are there. But I think to put it on the people who are doing it at the historic site ignores the fact that the ghost stories are going to be told even without that person Mm -hmm. at the historic site. So maybe you're legitimizing it in some way, but you also, if you don't do it, you're shutting down that dialogue that you can't talk about. Like we were mentioning that the Chloe story, right? It it serves a purpose. It it serves as a way for people to talk about things. On the Vassar campus, you know, it's difficult to talk about suicide. We don't have a lot of suicides. I've had students that I have lost to suicide here. And, you know, those students and their deaths haunt me, not in the, that they're standing next to me, speaking to me, but in the sense that, you know, when I hear students today saying similar things to what those students were saying to me leading up to them ending their lives, it makes me very nervous. And to them, it's like, wait, I'm only saying this, right? They don't know that other context that Mm -hmm. I have. And, you know, suicide can be a very political thing to talk about on a campus, you know, in in that way. So if I don't engage with the suicide stories at Vassar, am I taking a political stance? If I do engage with them, am I taking a political stance? People could argue one way or the other, but I take it from more of a humanistic perspective that suicide exists. The suicide rates in the United States are three times that of the murder rate. And if we don't talk about suicide, how can we try to prevent it? People think that they should be afraid of somebody lurking in the bushes trying to kill them. So one of the things I teach is forensics. And I actually moved away from teaching forensics on a regular basis because I found that the students are too excited by other people's deaths, but in a way that to me is much more gruesome than a ghost story right? Mm -hmm. Because it is a literal, this person had this done to them. And a lot of people who consume, you know, true crime, they focus on the murderer, right? The murderer is the interesting thing. The victims are almost always nameless and faceless. And we don't care about them and what they went through. We don't care about their families. We don't care that we talk about their deaths in sensational ways. Is retelling a ghost story that is nonspecific, that brings to light the things that people are concerned about, is that more or less political than having a podcast about a teenage woman who was raped and murdered, and we're all going to sleuth to figure out what happened? I think that's much more political and much more unseemly. When I told students one year, I was teaching a class that was a freshman writing seminar. So they were the youngest of the students here. I told them that according to the FBI statistics that I had that year, you know, women being raped and murdered by strangers is infinitesimal. It's almost always somebody that they knew and somebody that they said, I love you to at some point in their life. And a student raised her hand and said, we don't want this information. Mm -hmm. But that information can 
help them navigate the world. It could make them not so afraid of strangers. It could make them more worried about their loved ones. Most murder in the United States is people who know each other, mm -hmm. right? And the people who are murdered by people that they don't know is usually young men. But we rarely tell young men, oh, be careful, you're going to go out there and be murdered by a stranger, right? To me, ghost stories are more about the things that like actually could be happening that we could be talking about in ways that help people, whereas all the true crime stuff that people consume is actually misleading people, right? And making people afraid of each other in ways that is unhealthy. There's so many accounts of somebody like their car breaks down and they knock on somebody's door and they wind up getting shot because somebody thought they were going to come kill them. So like anything could be political, but how do you get out of that, that you're like binding your hand? It's like worrying about ghost hunting being science or not science when ghost hunters believe it is science and they're doing what we teach in high school as science. I don't let it be an issue in what I'm talking about. And, you know, if that is a mistake, right? It hasn't, it hasn't come to haunt me in that way that sure. we need to be talking about it more. But a lot of the academics, you know, the hauntology academics is about class. It is about war. It is about some people die and are not remembered and other people die and are celebrated. But in some ways, and I think Michelle Hanks talks about this in her book, some people see ghost hunting as ways of fixing that. Mm -hmm. that you're talking about that five-year-old boy who died in his house that is never going to be in any history book. Maybe it's that it's taking away the political bias by being more democratized, or that's my interpretation of some of the content in Michelle Hanks's book. Based on the conversations I've had with her, I think she would agree with you on that. So. Yeah, she and I were also in a conference session about a decade ago. <laughs> She's actually the person who said, hey, you should check out the stuff written by April Bisa. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. she and I haven't. And we're both in New York, I believe. I, I believe yeah. we're just a train right away. We, we should we need to get together for coffee. Is there anything else you'd like to talk about while we're here? I think it's just, you know, to re-anchor it back in what I've been trying to do is to to show how ghost hunting and archaeology are, are very similar mm -hmm. and in that way, you know, there's a use for archaeologists in, in studying ghost hunting. One of the examples we talked about was like the door that goes nowhere or the locked door that you can't unlock. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the, the most favorite artifacts for historical archaeologists is, you know, the skeleton key that you find. And then somebody takes a picture of a skeleton key in your hand. And then that's the cover of your book. It's in every conference presentation. It's in every newspaper article. You know, if you just think that the ghost hunters are, are finding the locked doors and pointing to them and saying, why is this door locked? Right. You could also think that the archaeologists are finding the lost keys Right. And they're pointing to them and saying, look at this lost key. And I think there's a space there where the two can can come together in ways that would make the public really understand the power of what we both do, which is to understand that, you know, we're not the only people who've lived on this land. We're not the only people who've lived in our houses and that we, too, will be gone soon. And how are people going to speak of us? And I don't know if we'll make it into a history book, but we might make it into a, a nice ghost story. Well, I would consider it an accomplishment if there are ghost stories about me down the line. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Before we go, I just wanted to mention, since you've brought up Door to Nowhere a few times, and you were talking about being in Santa Cruz for the SAAs. Santa Cruz is the location of my favorite Door to Nowhere. Near the downtown area, there's a hill right behind the boardwalk 
and a part of the hill has been blasted away to make way for roads. And there is a house there that has a door that opens onto the cliff. Uh-huh. And I've always, when I lived in Santa Cruz, I loved checking that out every time I walked by the area. Yeah, that's the magic of this stuff, right? Whether you wrap it in a ghost story, all you need to say is that somebody fell to their death there. And then it's mm-hmm. a ghost story. You don't really need anything else. But yeah, and they, you know, why is that door there? You know, why have it, they boarded it up? It's just like, why is that house persist? In our world where everything has to be safe and everything has to make sense, these things that aren't safe and don't make sense, they're exciting. We want mm-hmm. to know more. Yeah. And I think that in your papers, you make a pretty good case that the uh, use of ghost stories is something that we really should be paying attention to and perhaps something that people in our profession should uh, learn a bit from. Yeah. And if they don't, I'm just going to keep having fun. <laughs> Well, thank you very much for your time. You too. It was lovely to meet you and talk to you. Have a spooky day. You too. Talk to you later. (laughs) If you have a weird tale, have had a strange experience of your own, or know of a bit of local lore that should get a wider audience, please feel free to contact me at ghostthropology at gmail.com. That's G-H-O-S-T-H-R-O-P-O-L-O-G-Y at gmail. You can find more at kmmamedia.com. Click on the Ghostropology link and you can find episodes, transcripts, sources, and a link to support us through Patreon. Spooky!